Let's go Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room and a little racks underneath the seats. Uh, You should be able to grab one of those. Uh, That is the best way uh, to uh, open up God's Word this morning. We put it on the screen for convenience, but there's just something different about God's Word sitting in your lap looking at it yourself, and we, we, we think that's effectual for God's purposes. And so if you if you got one within reach, I would encourage you to go that route instead of just a screen route. You, you can see it on a screen later. Um, here's the deal. If you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. Uh, we, we really do believe that, that, that God's Word is, is something that convicts us of sin and draws us to repentance. We believe it's the, the primary means by which God makes Himself known to us as His creation and as His people. Uh, we believe He uses it to shape us individually and as a body called the church. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. it we'll call it a win. Um, Ephesians, or not Ephesians, whoo! Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. I'm actually going to be speaking at a chapel service for a a, a Baptist college here on Tuesday, and I'm going to be preaching out of Ephesians 2. Shocker, I know, right? Um, No, it's going to be a good time. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. We kicked off a new series last week. Uh, Maybe you were here, maybe you weren't. Uh, Let me give you the rundown. We looked at uh, Jesus' account with two of his followers, one named Cleopas, the other guy we don't know, found in uh, Luke 24. It happens on Resurrection Sunday, the first Easter morning. And in that story, in Luke 24, Jesus takes a seven-mile hike, just marches down the road with these guys from one village to the next, from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And they, and, and they have all these questions, and they've got all these heartaches, and they're not sure what to believe because they hadn't seen Jesus yet, and he's disguised himself. They don't know it's him. All right? And so on this seven-mile journey, Jesus walks them through what, we, what Luke tells us is Moses and the prophets. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the books that Moses wrote, and then the prophets. And he marches them through all of those stories and says, this is about Jesus, and this is about Jesus, and this is about Jesus, and this is about Jesus. And he, he, he helps them understand all the things concerning himself, quote-unquote, is what Luke, uh, the way Luke expresses that. And so we kicked off the series last week by, uh, by showing that the whole Old Testament is really about Jesus. And that's our aim for this series. We want to walk through the Bible and answer the question, what does this tell us about God and his great story. But here's the deal. That's a big question to ask. And so I want to break it down into four smaller questions. Throughout the Old Testament, we're going to try to answer four questions well to help us answer the much bigger question. Um, how is this person raised up? How, what made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does this story preach the gospel? I think if we can answer those four questions very well, we can answer the much bigger question of how is this story about the story of God, all right? If we can answer those four smaller questions real well, I think we can get somewhere good. All right, so let's give our guy a little profile. Adam, all right, there's a nice little kid's Bible cartoon picture of him, nicknamed the first dude, had a sweet deal, messed it up for everybody coming after him, right? That's what we think about with Adam. Like, if you haven't noticed yet, um, we, we've got this... We're going to do a lot of slides this morning. Uh, we've got uh, these big plans. Uh, our, our hope is to do something a little different for our more visual learners in the group uh, this morning. Uh, throughout the length of the series, give you something on the screen to look at and to, to maybe use for, for notes. All right? um, and we ended up working out a solution where I'm controlling everything with my iPad, which is really dangerous. 
So I say that to say this. If at some point things go haywire up there, don't turn around and look at Garrett. It's not his fault. It's my fault, and you shouldn't be shocked, right? No, we're going to have a good time with it. And uh, so Adam, first guy, had a sweet deal, messed it up for everybody else. Question number one. Y'all ready to get into it? How was this person raised up? Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. Verse 15. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, and the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there are countless, countless things that we could point out about this text and probably should point out about this text. But there are two things specifically that I think we ought to point out about this text this morning. One is that God created Adam differently than everything else, Right? In chapter 1, we get this cosmic level picture that God speaks things into existence and they just happen, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He he said, let there be light, and there was light. In the Hebrew, it's even shorter than that. It's just light be and light was. (laughs) Like it's... It's, it's this incredibly rich picture that by the authority and the power of his word alone, God creates the entire cosmos. But then in chapter 2, we zero our focus in. The creation story gets told again, but it, instead of the cosmic level, it goes microscopic. It zeroes its focus down on the creation of man. And here, instead of speaking things into existence, we see that Adam is what? He's formed. There's artistry here, right? Everything else is spoken into existence, but Adam is formed. There's intentionality here. And it doesn't mean that there's not intentionality in all the other things God has made, but it seems like he stepped it up a level, right? It seems like there's a little more purpose and a little more intent and definitely a whole lot more design here. He has formed Adam. 
Man is set apart from the rest of creation as an image bearer of God. To serve as a vice regent of this new creation. And that leads us to the second thing we need to point out this morning. That God gives Adam a job to do. Like everything else in creation just exists, right? They're hanging out, having a good time. Adam is given a job to do. What's his job? To tend the garden. And if you haven't picked up the pieces by now, we're not talking about a little backyard veggie garden, are we? We're talking about an outdoor wonderland. Every, like in another place, we, we, God tells Adam to multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. So it's not just about tending the garden. It's also about making everything outside of the garden look like the garden, right? Man is endowed. Adam is endowed with creativity and with entrepreneurship and a work ethic. And he is turned loose in God's brand new creation. His role is to lead the rest of creation with creativity in design, Adam is essentially given the keys to the kingdom. Look at verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam is given the keys to God's kingdom. Not in a deistic God creates and steps back, never touches it again kind of way. But in a, he raised up his under-shepherd, his vice-regent, and gave him authority. Endowed him with what was necessary to take what God had made and do something with it. Many of you have probably had relationships like that, right? Whether it's a kid or uh, uh, somebody coming after you, uh, under you at work. You've held the role of trying to empower someone else to succeed, right? That's what God does here. He makes this creation. He puts Adam in and says, go get him, cowboy. Does that translate in New England? Probably not. I got nothing. All right. But we have more questions to answer this morning. The second question is this. What made him a seemingly bad choice? Well, the story's not over yet, is it? Look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Time out. Does God need to ask that question? Why is he asking the question? You know. All right. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Time out. Does God need to ask that question? Okay, carry on. Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, um, what started out as perfection, right? Not, not just in the creation, but even within the relationship between man and his creator, right? There's, there's no animosity there. There's no, uh, there's no disconnect there. All is flawless in the relationship between God and man results now in them jumping in the bushes to hide from him. Something has been fractured here, right? Something is absolutely off. Their relationship with God now looks like them trying to avoid Him. Why? Because they disobeyed Him, right? They ate of the fruit He commanded them not to eat. But there's a distinction that we need to draw here this morning for people who aren't familiar with the story. It's not because the fruit is intrinsically bad. It's because in that moment... They are rejecting God's kingship, his lordship over their hearts and lives. They see him as somebody who's trying to rob them of joy, withhold joy from them. And so they take matters in their own hands and set themselves up as rulers and definers of themselves. But that's not the only reason Adam is a seemingly bad choice. Adam is also too weak to lead like he's been called to. I don't know what your church background is. Maybe it's like mine. I had just enough church in me growing up. We, we weren't an, a family that did the church thing often. My mom would drop me off to church stuff sometimes. And, and so I had just enough of the Bible stories to be inoculated by them. Anybody else? I, I had ideas of what these stories were about, but didn't really know because I never actually read them for myself. I don't know, maybe I'm alone in the room on that. All right. um, and I remember hearing and repeating things, jokes like uh, guys would make, well, if you ladies hadn't eaten that fruit, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. The problem with that line of thinking is that that is not at all what the Bible says. Not even close. Because in God's eyes, Adam is to blame. Not Eve. In God's eyes, Adam is to blame here. We just read in chapter 2 that the command is given to not eat the fruit from this tree before Eve is even created. Like, like if you want to read that in order, that command is given before Eve exists. So, whose job is it to tell Eve what God said? Adam's job. But we can make a nice little exegetical push here, right? I can give you something more than that. Look at verses 9 and 11 again. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are, what's that word? You. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? All right, so that word you happens five times in verses 9 and 11. Every single one of them in the Hebrew is singular. All of them, which means Adam or Eve is standing there, but God's not talking to Eve right now. 
He's talking to Adam right now. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the, tr- the fruit of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? In God's eyes, Adam is to blame. But it gets worse. Look at verse 12 again. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I, what? So Adam dumps the blame on Eve and on God for giving Eve to him. That's a party foul. (laughs) Not going to fly. Which means, gentlemen, that our own heart and our culture's failure to take responsibility and own what's in front of us, to lead out and, and, and do the things that are necessary that we're responsible for. Like when we see that in ourselves and when we see that in our culture. Listen, that's not a new thing. That's a Genesis 3 reality. It is a byproduct of the very first sin of our very first father. I think it also means that we're going to war against that mentality and that heart stance for the rest of our days until Jesus comes and makes all things new. And so when you find yourself failing in that regard and when you find the culture around you failing in that regard and you get to say, why can't they do this? No, listen, it is a product of the fall. And try as hard as we might, and we should, it ain't going anywhere for a while. We wait the day when Jesus will make all things new. So Adam and Eve fail, and God begins to hand out the punishments. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Apparently I skipped verse 15. I'll I'll read it from here. I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Back to 16. Uh, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife Eve and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So the punishments that God hands out are interesting. You keeping up with the story on that one? Like first, he, like we'll skip the serpent for the second for the, a moment because we're going to come back to it. But with a woman, God says that she's going to constantly wrestle with the dynamics of her relationship with her husband. And no married person in the room has ever experienced that. <laughs> but it's the other thing that's really weird to me. He says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. Which begs the question, was there something already there to multiply? Like, don't we kind of tend to read this story as if childbearing is the product of the fall? Now, when I say it out loud loud like that, you go, of course not. 
But don't we kind of tend to read the story that way? So when was the command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it given? Before the fall or after the fall? Do you think they were walking in obedience to that? Or at least trying to? Yeah. And so childbearing isn't a result of the fall, but the pain involved in it seems to be the case. But Eve is not the only one who's got a weird curse. Look at verse 17. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat of it, cursed is the what? So what is actually cursed here? It curses the ground. So the curse isn't given directly to Adam here. Rather, the rest of creation is cursed on behalf of Adam. It comes back to that vice regent thing we talked about, right? Adam's failure of leadership flows downstream. Man is still endowed with creativity, with entrepreneurship, with work ethic. But now this creation wars against him. It fights back, right? It produces thorns and thistles instead of his intended results. Man still carries the responsibility to be an image bearer and lead among creation, but he and the rest of creation don't seem to be on the same team anymore. It fights back. But that is not the end of the story. We have a third question to answer. How did God redeem him? Let's keep reading. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Okay, so God creates man and woman naked, and that's probably the way he intended to keep things. And every guy in existence has been trying to get back to that day since then. But sin brings shame. And there's now a disconnect. And what started with perfection in comfort and security is now marked by discomfort and vulnerability. Adam and Eve immediately start looking for ways to cover themselves. To hide themselves. Not just from each other, but from God too. I can't be seen like this. So what do they do? Fig leaf under ruse. Probably itchy. which means our best efforts are usually less than stellar. Think you can hide your shame? Good luck. You're sewing fig leaves together. But what does God do? He creates clothes for them. He uses some animal skin and makes them some clothes. He meets their needs even as he's handing out the punishment. 
Like the parents in the room know this. You've walked through this. Even as you're furious about the thing the kid did, not kicking them out of the house. You love them even as the punishment is laid down. I don't think that's the only way that God redeems Adam and Eve here. God also casts them out of the garden. And I've got to be careful here because I don't want people to mishear me. This is most assuredly, primarily punishment. To, to be cast out of the garden, to be cast out of God's presence is first and foremost an act of punishment. All right, so don't, don't mishear that. But I spent some time thinking about it this week, and I, and I think it's also, in a smaller way, a part of their redemption. God doesn't want Adam and, to eat the fruit from the tree of life and live forever. So in verse 22, God says that Adam has become like him and knowing the difference of, between good and evil. But that's the extent that Adam and God are like each other. Like Adam has no hope of being like God beyond that point. Adam is still created. He will never be anything other than a created thing in the presence of a creator. Right? Adam can't be like God. God is holy and other than. So the lie of the serpent earlier on is just that. It's a lie. Adam can't be like God. He can know the difference between good and evil, but he can't be like God. I think God also casts Adam out of the garden, prevents him from eating from the tree of life and living forever because God doesn't want Adam to live with the consequences of his sin forever. First and foremost, punishment. Don't, don't take that off the table. But again, even as the punishment is being handed out, there's grace here, right? Even as the, the punishment is being given out, there's grace. And that leads us to the last question for this morning. How does this story preach the gospel? In two absolutely massive ways. Look back at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his what? So the serpent produces a need for a savior. And that savior is going to come in the form of, quote, the offspring of the woman. Now, some people have taken that to mean the direct son of the woman. Most people, though, read that as someone from her line. And so who's God talking about here? Jesus. The serpent will bruise Jesus' heel but Jesus will crush the serpent's head. Picture of death and resurrection right there. Right in the very middle of pronouncing judgment for the very first sin, God is already promising a fix for everything that has gone wrong. Who does he address first as he's handing out these punishments? Starts with the serpent, then he goes to Eve, then he goes to Adam, right? So in the middle of the very first pronouncement, like he hasn't even addressed Eve yet. He hasn't gotten a third of the way through the, here's what we're going to do about this with the punishment stuff. He's already promising a fix for the problem. Theologians usually call this the proto-euangelion. There's your 10 cent word for the morning. Proto-euangelion, it means the first telling of the good news. 
They point to this moment and say, this is the first time the gospel is spoken in the Bible. I think most folks with a church background are probably familiar with that. Spend enough time in church, you've heard the gospel preached out of Ephesians, or, did it again, Genesis 3. But there's a second way. Look at verse 21 again. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So where did the animal skin come from? God had to kill an animal, right? So death is promised because of Adam's sin, but Adam's not the first thing to die. An innocent animal is slaughtered and used to cover them. Let's see if this rings any bells for people this morning. A shame caused by their sin. A shame they tried desperately to cover on their own with bushes and fig leaves. A shame they could never actually do anything about because God sees right through it. God instead turns around and without much effort seemingly on his part, slaughters a sinless substitute to cover their shame and bring them peace. Sound familiar? Grace is not something that God just learns how to do in the New Testament. Hear this this morning. Grace is not something God adds to his character later on down the line. It's found in the very first story of the very first character of the Bible. The gospel is found in the very first story of the very first character of the Bible. There will be one overarching theme to this series. God's raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. In our case this morning, God raised up Adam to be a shadow of a more perfect Adam to come in Jesus. But we got one more text for you this morning. Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Just three verses. But the Apostle Paul wrote this, and he can pack a lot in three verses, as y'all know. I'll just confess to y'all, Paul's a better writer than me. Most of you already knew that. The others of you hadn't read anything I've written yet. Romans 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, guess who he's talking about there, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus's, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made sinners, or the many were made sinners, excuse me, so by one man's obedience, Jesus's, the many will be made what? So what's Paul saying? That Jesus came to fulfill what Adam and we cannot. That's what Paul's saying in, in Romans chapter 5 in that little section. That Jesus stands faithful where you and I fail and therefore he is a worthy sacrifice for us on the cross. That's the message of the back half of Romans chapter 5. The story of God is no small deal. It is easily the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. 
It is in process from the beginning of the creation to the very end of the world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. That his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. So what do we do with our text this morning? How do we respond to God's word today? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. You do that by pressing into his word. He is pleased to reveal himself to you there. Pleased to do so. We can take another step into this. Maybe you're more like Adam than you want to admit. You have a tendency to believe the lie that God is somehow holding out on you. If you're going to chase after joy, you're going to have to go do it yourself. Grab at it on your own. Or maybe you know what you've been called to do and you've dropped the ball. Maybe you dropped it hard and you dumped the blame on others in the process. Can we just be honest here? Adam dropped the ball worse than anybody else in human history. Literally. If God's arm is not too short to redeem him, You're not too far gone. So press in this morning. Press into the God who is good and who is working all things out for his ultimate conclusion. That conclusion involves reconciling you to himself. So press in this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that's something that would be good for you. We want to be helpful in that regard. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. Hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. You can respond this morning as well. You do that by meeting the one capital O that this story is all about. Jesus doesn't just remain typology in the Old Testament. He steps onto the scene of human history. He lives a sinless life and he dies a sacrificial death as a substitute. He did that to pay the debt owed by yours and my sin. He reconciled us to God through his work on our behalf and he is pleased to extend that work to you when you confess your sin and come to him and him alone for salvation. We want to give you a chance to respond this morning as well. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and I have a couple of folks up front here to talk. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. We take that, that step pretty seriously. Man, we'd love to talk to you about that. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Genesis 2 and 3. Thank you for Romans 5. God, you are good. And you are reconciling people to yourself. But this is not a new story. God, you are, have been working this plan for a long time. And you are good at it. Would you save people today? For those who already know you, would you call them deeper into relationship with you? We still try desperately to sow fig leaves and hide in the bushes. But you see right through it. And you love us enough to engage. Oh, don't let me hide anymore.
call me out. Wash me clean, cover my shame. Call me yours. God, as we respond to your word this morning, would you give us the courage to do the things you've called us to do? God, thank you for the story of Adam. It's a good story. And you're a good author. But you're an even better star. So in your name we pray. Amen.